welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Chad Elkins, owner of 25th Century Games. 25th Century Games has released 15 game titles and two puzzles to date. His latest title, Raw, is currently on GameFound. Chad, welcome to the binge. How are you doing? Hey, James. Good to see you. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate uh, it. Yeah, I, I'm so excited to have you on. And I was just saying before we went on air, uh, I have so much to ask you, and there's zero chance I'm going to get through it all. So <laughs> it's maybe... bite-sized content, right? So yeah. you keep it, keep it bite-sized. Exactly. Maybe we'll schedule like a round two. Uh, yep. You know, I always love to ask my guests how they got into the industry. 25th Century Games, you know, you're obviously well-established as a company, but it had to start somewhere. Uh, so did you start off like with your own game or how did this all kind of come about? Sure. Yeah, I mean, like most people, you know, to enter this hobby, you, know, you pretty much start out as a as a gamer, you know, and an enthusiast of the hobby itself. I mean, no one jumps in this hobby um, and doesn't like playing games. So uh, yeah. that was the impetus for sure. You know, I I was um, where the actual first title, published title, came out from was I was working at a video games uh, startup here in Atlanta, uh, and we were releasing a title. Um, that I thought, oh, it'd be kind of fun to take these characters and and try to replicate this arcade shooter style uh, game and kind of take that IP and, and port it over into uh, to a card you know card game world, which yeah. is you know porting of video games and vice versa is extremely common. So I was trying to want to replicate that, um, and so I was talking to the the studio owners at the time, and they they weren't interested in kind of being distracted by a, a physical version of the game. So I was like, well, tell you what, I do why don't I see if I can come up with a, a concept and and then if we like it, we'll, you know, license the IP and then kind of just make the card game and kind of see what happens. So that's what I did. Um, so the, the first game we made uh, was actually designed by me, which is a rarity at this point now. Uh, I don't really design <laughs> games anymore. Um, I've only designed one other game since then, uh, but mostly just work on the development side, you know, here from a production standpoint. But um, yeah, so it was a game called Robo- Robots Love Ice Cream. Um, you know, I think did, I remember put on Kickstarter, one, yeah. you know, so that was, that was the first title. And so that was technically a licensed IP title, you know, from a, from a small. How many studio. years ago was that? Like, when did that start? Oh God, 2016 or 17, I think, um, wow. was when that happened 2016. So in the general, uh, like timeline, it, your company's fairly young, right? Like that's like five, seven years. Oh, I'm still, I still feel like a small indie startup. So yeah. it's still, it's still just me like a full-time perspective, like day-to-day is still just me. Obviously, I work with a lot of people like from a contract perspective, like mission, I'm like mission control, you know, more than anything <laughs> else. But, but yeah, still just me, you know, like I still answer every email, answer, do every social post. I still, you know, pack orders that come in from the web store that are items I don't have in the warehouse to get them to send out. So if you're getting a random package from that looks handwritten or, or terribly packaged, it's probably coming from me. It's amazing. Like this industry, I, the number of people I talk to that assume uh, that there's armies of people behind all these indie uh, companies. And the reality is there's not right. Like you're talking many cases, one person or a few, right? Not, not a lot. Like it is a lot of work to shoulder, but I think it's the passion that that certainly drives that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is an industry where, 
there is not some mega faceless entity, you know, kind of a thing. And I think a lot of times people, I think, forget that, you know, or just assume that there's an, this army of people behind the scenes that if they ask a question, don't get an answer in an hour, they get upset, you know, or something like it's like, you know, you're or overly critical and like just rudely critical about stuff. And like, yeah. you know, like, like, yeah, I can complain about a TV. It's from Sony or something. And like the, literally the owner of Sony is not going to be reading that response or really probably not going to care. You yeah. know, but like you're talking about something that people really put their heart. I mean, you've, you've made, you know, games too. I mean, you put, you know, put all this effort and time and stuff. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody has to like everything, but you know, when you get one of those like overly brutal, you know, like kind of comments, you're like, and that stings a little bit, but uh, thanks. You know, <laughs> the analogy I give people, cause I, I don't think people realize that game design is, is a form of art right? Yeah. Like the, obviously there's art? a lot of science and math into it, but it's a form. So think about if there's somebody, the equivalent mm. I would give is somebody's painting, uh, like, like an artist painting a, a painting, right? So it does a painting and they take it to, to like an art show. What are the chances you're going to crap on that painting right in front of the artist? Yeah. yeah. Right. It, they're, they're, you just, that just doesn't happen. Right. Usually people are like, right. oh, I don't know. I, I don't understand. You know, I don't really interpret this, but you know, usually it's like, wow, that person's really talented you don't get the same love sometimes in the gaming industry where no. you put your heart, your soul, your creativity hours upon hours upon hours of, of kind of creating this creation. And, you know, someone from a distance sees it in a forum somewhere and, and they're not necessarily thinking about the person behind the thing that they're, they're, they're trashing in many cases unjustly. Right. Well, I mean, it's also, I mean, yeah, yeah, people should be able to voice their opinions however they want to, but, but it's, absolutely. You know, and, and, and people aren't always thinking that, you know, there's someone looking at that, um, you know, someone that's involved in that project that intimately is going to just, is going to see that comment thread in that Facebook group or that, you know, board yeah. game geek thread or whatever. But I can assure you people up that people are reading that, you know, whether they comment or respond to you or not, you know, they'll see it, you know? And oh, so yeah. just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're being on, on, on being on that receiving side of it a lot. You know, I get very, um, um, when I, I publicly make comments about things, like I always keep that in mind that like, Hey, the person who created this is going to see it, you know, I, I would imagine. So yeah, try to put, try to have some tact, you know, it's a small industry too, right? Like it seems big, yeah. but it's not like everyone knows everyone. <laughs> like yeah. it is. Oh, absolutely. Like we were talking for the show and you mentioned a couple of minutes like, Oh yeah. And that person. Yeah. It's, that. it's, it's very intimate. Right. So, so how did you get into your first kind of license where you said, okay, now I'm going to do other people's titles and instead of my own, my own creation, what, what got you to kind of, to go that direction? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, my key strength, you know, pretty quickly to figure it out was not original design, you know? And so um, pivoting that to knowing I wanted to function more on the business side of it, like the back back office side of it from a publishing standpoint mm -hmm. like that's my strength otherwise i would just design games and sold them to other publishers because you know that's that's not necessarily the same strength you know for people and i think a lot of people who first who are designers who first time publish their own games realize that pretty quick because there's a large number of games that get published for one designer one time and then yeah. you know they uh, they don't they don't publish again because it's, it's definitely a skill set that's not doesn't transfer but that was mine um, you know, and, and I enjoy the development process more than anything else, like in the uh, component production aspect of it. Like, how are we going to, how are we going to take this design concept and bring it to life? You know, and I, I like working with 
you know, the art and the art side of it. Not obviously, I can't draw with a damn, but I like you know working with artists on the art side of it and, and working with art director and, and graphic designer and trying to frame out what that UI and that UX is going to look like. Um, so that's my strength. So I knew I needed to pivot if I was going to keep 25th century games going as opposed to just a one-off thing I just did as an interesting side project. Um, uh, and, and so looking for other game designs, you know, is what I had to start doing. Uh, I was so early on, so it wasn't a lot of people um, you know, just sending me random game designs like I, like I get now. You know, there's no design submissions for someone who puts out one game that wasn't exactly a hit. Um, and so the second game I put out was a game from um, called Christmas Lights. It's now gone through a second edition. I think we've had like five printings of it. Um, and it's uh, it was actually attempted to be funded, I think like two or three times on Kickstarter and was never successful. I was like, oh, it's like, seems like a neat little game. Let's, why don't we team up and let me kind of help you put a new coat of paint on it. Let's refine the design a little bit and, and change the graphic design and the approach for it. Uh, and then kind of re-put it back out there. And so that was what I did, which was the second game. Uh, and then I did a, a local localization project for my third game. And then okay. kind of kind of started going. Yeah, in re- it doesn't seem like a lot of games over like six years, like 15 or so. But, uh, you know, for the, like most people early on, it was a singular path of a single, singular development path, right? Like you're working on one game. You might start tinkering on another game, but it's like that game has to, to end. You do all the stuff, fulfill it, it gets out there. And then you like start the process to get ready for the next game. You know, not and maybe you need the funds to start art for the next game, which makes it really hard to do to really start to try to snowball, you know, a business. And so you, at some point, you've got to pivot to a um, a parallel path approach where you've got multiple projects and multiple stages of of initiation of design through development, pre-production, et cetera, which takes time and, and takes money, you know, to kind of get that ball moving yeah. because in some cases you're paying for art and graphic design and stuff for three or four games at a time before you've ever seen a penny from either of them. Right. And no guarantee so, on a penny coming from any of them either. And no guarantee on a penny. Yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, that takes a little bit. And of course, once that snowball starts moving, and you've got that kind of regular cadence of things happening that kind of keeps that parallel development path moving, uh, which is how your your title release schedule can can get a little more constricted, I guess, from a, a time is standpoint. Is it tough to resist? I would think that there would be this almost urgency to want to start staffing up, right? So as you the snowball starts rolling, as you're describing it, um, and you have more balls in the air you're trying to juggle that, ah, oh, you know, maybe I can unload some things to these people and to some, maybe I'll just hire a bunch of staff on to help me. Right. Was there a decision process you go through where you have to kind of like do a bit of a gut check and say, yeah, it'd be great, but maybe not ideal the situation or, or how did you kind of navigate that? Yeah. I mean, that's just, um, that's just looking at cash flow, looking at, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, um, yeah. hiring staff is, is not cheap, you know, and you get, yeah. you gotta look at, at current cash flow, you can look at you know, projected cash flow, and, and is that worth taking the leap to either go full time or hire someone full time or whatever? You know, obviously, I, I spend a lot of money on contract help, like you know, part time people that plug into different yeah. things, um, which obviously takes capital and then ca- eats up cash flow. But I haven't had a chance to, op- to expand to another person here, and it's it's tempting to just immediately say like, oh, I need to like hire up and because I'm going to grow 10x if I've got two more people or whatever. Um, I think, and fortunately, retrospect, I didn't do all that, um, you know, pre you know, kind of COVID crisis from a manufacturing cost and like a shipping cost perspective, because 
you know, there's a lot of companies out there. So, I mean, I got blindsided like everybody else, you know, yeah. on, on rising shipping costs and everything. And, you know, I've had a, you know, some games land over the last six months that, you know, were 10x what it should have cost to land them, you know. And yeah, yeah, that that money and retrospect, obviously I could have, I absorbed it. And I guess that absorption could have been spent on the staff member, but because I didn't have staff and like lay people off because of it or kind of freak out and, um, certainly it's hard to weather it, you know, but you get through it. And then like, there's like a game that got landed. I'm not going to say which one, but there's a, there's a game that's landed that's now available in retail that like, I'll, like that game's underwater for the entire print run, like before oh, wow. I even sold it, you know, and no matter what happens with, once I sell it out, the whole project was underwater, you know, so because of shipping prices, you know, and, and margins being compressed and being committed to a price point that, needed to have been raised at, at an MSRP level that wasn't able to be raised and you get kind of stuck, you know, in something. So it, it can adjust it down the road, of course, for reprints, but I've got to imagine like that's that. probably the biggest risk is when you have multiple projects, because again, the development time to, to get a, a project to market, you know, you're looking at least nine months to a year, right? At least at the very, very right. least. Sometimes you're looking at even two, three years. Um, oh, from like signing of a game to, or even like shelf. a kick, yeah, take a Kickstarter, a for instance, right? Even a Kickstarter, when you finally get your funding to when you're ready to ship it, often is even a year. Right. And as we've just seen in this current environment, <laughs> uh, a lot can happen in a year. And if all your cost and your whole P&L is based on that initial funding, right? When you got your funding in and all your costs and everything, and then between then and when you actually make your game, as you're saying, shipping and things like that go up 10x, you're left with really hard decisions, right? Do you eat it? We did that on a campaign as well. We had some, our costs went up and, and we ate it, right? Um, yep. Or do you go back to the well, right? And go back to the, the the backers and ask for more. And that is not what anybody ever wants to do, right? And sometimes people are forced to do that, which is uh, the, the worst case scenario, right? Well, I mean, I think it also depends on, you know, if it was in a project that you planned to just re straight to retail release, you know, which is also its own completely different set of, of, stress and capital, right? Because you don't get any, you don't get any manufacturing subsidy you know, or, yeah. or shipping subsidy because you're coming out of pocket for the whole thing. And so for the first time during COVID, we, we had some straight to retail releases and still have some this year, um, which of course presents challenges when all of a sudden your costs drastically go up and you don't have that, that well of, of subsidy, right? Or, or from stuck a Kickstarter on a boat. Standpoint, or stuck on a boat. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think from a, you know, I think a lot of Kickstarter creators, Gonna get stuck in a place of do I eat this because I can eventually you know I can one I can afford to do it and can I weather it can I still deliver the project yeah. kind of stuff and, and and that's a decision a creator's got to make but it's also one of those things where if I can't you know as a creator and I've taken people's money and I, I and things outside my control happen you know I, I I don't I don't fault creators like I'd much rather see a creator go back to the well and say hey like like folks, I, I know we already closed the pledge manager and you were charged $15 for shipping or whatever it was, or 10 bucks, or we gave it away free because we thought we could afford it. And now we're going to charge you, you know, five bucks more or something. Like I'd rather people just come back and be honest about that and say, yeah, I got to charge you five bucks more. You got to open it back up um, to fulfill the project because otherwise you're not going to get the project. I think people, people understand that, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things outside, especially now it's like, pre-COVID days, if that had happened, people would have been like, what? Like you yeah. did some sneaky stuff, whatever. But, you know, it, I think now the, the word's gotten out and there's enough conversation about the last, the, the I mean, I say the, the previous impact, it's still happening now, but I think that 
there's enough commentary out there about it where I think folks are understand it more. So I, I think I'd be remiss to say uh, thank you for actually coming on the podcast when you have five uh, hours left in your current campaign, man. This is like, like, the, this is like the home stretch. This is like the easy part, you know? It's like, other than just answering some random last minute questions. It's like, so literally, yeah, all, the, all the hard work's done. I'm looking at the clips. I got on the screen right here. You're at four hours and 42 minutes left of this campaign. Uh, Raw, it's by Reiner. Uh, is it Kenitia or Nitia? I've heard it different ways. I say Nitia, but. I say Kanitia. I, I, right. I say I'm Ryan like, Kanitia. We'll call it Kanitia. I'm, like, I'm, from, I'm from Alabama. I don't know how to say it. Yeah. So, I'm just... <laughs> so you, you've got this game. It, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's, I guess it's like a, a reprint, right? That you've taken on. So yeah. first of all, how did you get the rights to this game? Did you just call them up and say, hey, I love the game. I want to do a reprint or? Uh, well, I mean, not for this title directly, right? Like, so this was, so we had worked together on, had brought back Tutankhamen, which is another, another Reiner game yeah. um, that was been printed a couple of times, you know, once in Europe and once in the U S um, back in the early two thousands. And so worked on bringing back a new edition of that game. And then that went well, you know, you kind of liked, you know, the working together and then like mm-hmm. what the production of what we, what we did with that game, you know, and how we kind of brought that one back. And so we started having conversations about other, other projects to do. Uh, and then and conversation led to this game and, um, you know, a couple other things that are, were not, not reprints, a couple of newer titles we're working on like Longboard, which has already been announced and coming out this summer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a, it was a progression. Like I definitely would not have been able to jump straight to, you know, to raw, which is you know certainly one of his probably top, you know, five games that he's made. Yeah. And you've done, so it's basically an auction game, right? Is it, can you give people just a 30 second overview of what the, what the sure. game is about? Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a pure auction game. Like that's yeah. all you do is determine whether or not you, if you're going to call an auction and what you're going to bid on it. Uh, and then you're collecting a set collection from there, you know, on different scoring conditions. Um, but one of the, one of the, the piece about that's that kind of, I guess that gets people the most excited, especially for people that don't like auction games, a lot of times like this one because what you bid is restricted to the exact numbers, the tokens that you have in front of you. So you've only got, you've got a very limited set mm. of tokens, usually either three or four when you start yep. the round. Um, so there's not a whole lot of, a lot of problems with auction games is like you don't really understand what things are worth, right? So the first time you ever play an auction game where you have free reign to bid however much you want to bid, if you don't understand the value of what you're bidding in context of in-game scoring, you can overpay for things or not buy the things that you need. But in this one, because the bidding counts are so fixed, uh, you don't have that much variance, you know, in that, in that concept. I love the theme. I mean, uh, I'm always been a fan of Egyptology. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite topics. I mean, I just, I geek out over that stuff. Often we'll just read the most recent stuff in archeology span uh, magazine about what's coming down and you know, what they're uh, investigating in Egypt. So that attracted me to the game just, out of the out of the kind of off the get-go. And then when I start digging into what you've done here, especially with the deluxe, uh can you can you talk about the deluxe? Cause man, it is sure. it is pretty slick uh what you guys have come forward with. Yeah, so the deluxe is purely component upgrade. Like there's no gameplay variants, which I don't do between editions, right? So this is a, a purely a, a just if you want a different tactile you know, kind of gameplay experience. Yeah. So there are 180 tiles, auction tiles in the game. Uh, we have upgraded all those to wood. So they're all five millimeter wood. Uh, yeah. We're doing like a really kind of a, a very small cross grain. This is like almost like mini plywood. So it's like multiple layers of, of like 
centric plywood, um, which is good because it's it's less resistance to breakage because the tiles are pretty good size, like you know, yeah. diameter wise. Um, so if you were to drop one, if it was like a solid piece of wood, you might crack that along the grain line. Um, if you've got a really, really large meatball or something, you could see that happen if you drop sure. it. Um, but because these are so large, we want to make sure that you did, we didn't have that issue. So we want like a pretty nice quality cross grain plywood, which is the same wood we used, same style wood uh, and supplier that we use for Garden Bell. Uh, okay. Which is another game that's coming out soon that we went with, have very large wooden tiles. We did the same process there. And we're doing like this cool, like, like a heat transfer film concept. So you get really rich textured yeah. art on it, not like a screen print that's kind of like dull and you know, kind of grainy. This yeah, is it's a like very full color. Yeah. <laughs> full art color. Yeah. It's yeah. like really no different than looking at it on a, a piece of plastic or um yeah. kind of card, right? And then the tokens. Uh, then the, Talk about the tokens, man. <laughs> yeah. The, the, so the metal coin is interesting. So in, in the in the cardboard edition, the, the metal scoring tablets, you know, which are metal in the game, have two sides to them. One side is a solid, but it's a silver, and then one side is gold with a color. It's for the one, two, five, and ten points, uh, different colors for each. So what we did was we, I wanted to replicate that as, much, as close as possible to the deluxe version. So we're actually doing a, a dual, uh, it's like a dual plating uh, coin where you yeah. have one side is one half is silver, and so you, it's a, it's a washed silver. Then the other half um, is gold with uh, soft enamel uh, accents for the coloring piece. So, um, and there's 80 of those in the game. There's 180 of the wood tiles in the game. Um, yeah, I got on screen. Know, I, they're beautiful. I mean, I I, I don't want to understate how nice these look. <laughs> it like yeah, and people like you know people think about like every single one of those coins is basically an enamel pin. If you think about that way, like, since yeah. it's literally metal and enamel, and people are like, oh, the deluxe is 80 bucks, and I'm like. Y'all don't even realize what 80 soft enamel essentially coins cost, you know, because it's not like it's just metal where they're just pressing it and going like they're laying the soft enamel, yeah. you know, hit those. Um, but yeah, I, I've never seen that done before on the dual plating, like two different sides, like different silver and like a gold. And yeah, certainly haven't seen that level of enamel like in a standard coin, you know, in, in a game. Oh, I love it. Can you talk to us about uh, GameFound? So your decision to go on game, this is your first title you've put on GameFound uh, yep. since they've opened up the beta. Why did you choose GameFound? Yeah, so, you know, I've always been following the GameFound, you know, launch and like their initial first few campaigns and it was extremely closed um, as an alternate source of Kickstarter, right? And, and really curious about it because of the way that they've built up, obviously, their, their pledge manager to build the base and then they kind of use that to kind of leverage it to the, the front side. So I was very curious, right? Um, at, at that time, we're, we're, I was having to make the decision. Kickstarter was having some of their issues uh, with some PR stuff around, um, you know, around crypto and, and the, yeah. the, all that stuff, right? And so there was already some waning, you know, like people losing interest in Kickstarter and wanting an alternative. So honestly, I think Game GameFound was like just was in the right place at the right time to t- take advantage of that uh, and escalate their growth for sure. So I was curious about it. Um, the problem with if you make the jump or not as a creator. One, I'd obviously built up the followers and everything within Kickstarter. So you have that natural Kickstarter kind of engine already built up. Jumping ship, you lose that, right? The problem is you also can't A-B test your decision. Like it's not like you can run them on both and see which one works out better, you know? And and you're kind of stuck with with that choice. Raw was one that, like I could have made that choice later. Um, you know, and, and probably would have to try it out on a, on a, a future game. Yeah. But with Raw coming up, I was like, you know what? I was like, 
people are going to buy raw because it's extremely well known. So it's a new edition. It's been out of print for a while, hard to get. I was like, raw is almost going to have its own following. It's independent of 25th century games. Like that's just people are going to back it regardless whatever what brand name is on on that. Obviously, as long as it looks good, the price is right, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I thought from a, like a risk standpoint, making the jump to GameFound with a title that was well known, um, you know, I knew it was going to look good production wise and everything. I thought it was the least risky. Now that said, you know, if it was on Kickstarter instead, would I raised fifteen percent more, twenty percent more? You know, who knows? Like, who knows? Know. That's, so, um, so yeah, so that, that was the decision. I mean, obviously, it didn't impact it at all. The game found folks have been great. Yeah, um, you know, worked a lot with them, and you know, actually, when they, when they announced the raw campaign, is when you know that at that that campaign, I think like five others were kind of part of the announcement that they're opening it up into public. Yeah. Um, you know, so obviously that helped get some attention and they've been great to try to help support it and, and push it in other areas and their newsletter and stuff. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, that I never got from Kickstarter, right? Obviously Kickstarter has their own kind of embedded exposure pieces, right? Like you see an update, they'll drop in some of their campaigns. You get an email, they'll embed some of their campaigns, but no one from Kickstarter was ever reaching out to you and saying, Hey, like, you know, we're going to go spend some money here for to help you out. Like you want to add to that, you want to do this, yeah. want us to help you here or that. Like that, that level was never there, which has also been very impressive with the why I've seen so far from the game fund folks. Yeah. It, it, I mean, in full disclosure, uh, we've got a game coming up called planting evidence that we've decided to to try on game found. We've mentioned on the podcast as well. And part of the things that really attracted me to this platform was Unlike on Kickstarter, where it's becoming harder and harder for new publishers who are coming with their first game, individuals to kind of cut through the clutter and have any kind of exposure without paying for it it is getting tougher and tougher on the Kickstarter platform, I found. So like you, I wanted to test this platform to say, well, let's see. Let's see, you know, can we carry some people over? We had used it as uh, as a pledge manager. So I knew that I had a good chunk of my backers were already... Uh, already had counts uh, created on on uh, yep. on GameFound, but what blew me away was just the one thing that always frustrated me on the Kickstarter platform was the lack of visibility until you launch. Yep. Right, you get a thumbnail, you don't get any. Uh, for those who don't know, there's these tags you can create in the background. So if you're running an ad, you can attach a specific tag to it so you can measure your success and and really kind of manage it by measuring it, right? Understanding which yep. activities are driving your your pledges. Well, they don't, that none of that activates until the campaign actually starts, right? At the, yep. the minute you hit you hit go and uh, the campaign- You're scrambling to go create you're scrambling. codes and whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the first 12 hours, it, it, it's, it's chaos. GameFound gives you exposure to all that up front. GameFound allows you to give a draft version that you can make public to everybody so everybody can see what you have to offer weeks yep. <laughs> before you actually launch yeah, you can so, choose how much of that page you want to expose you can expose one block but not another like yeah. so you've got you don't have that flexibility um, yeah and the tag one i think we'll probably do a video on this alone because that one caught me off guard is that i was shocked that you have access to the tags immediately mm-hmm. like i can create tags now for a campaign that's yeah. not yeah, that way you launching can start in three it. weeks yeah you can start well, yeah, right? you'll, you'll run them now and it'll store it. And then once that backer backs that followed the page, yeah. it'll attribute it back to that, that first tag. Yeah. And uh, then which, the is, ins- which is, which is great. 
And then the incentive was the other one that kind of thought was cool is that they're just to follow a campaign prior to it launching. If you just want to say, you know, I'm going to kind of like Kickstarter has where you have your thumbnail and people can follow you and be notified when it goes live. GameFound has something very similar, but they actually have integrated incentives that are clicks of a button. So if you want to offer a couple dollars for somebody to follow, they, they get off the game if they follow you or they get a special something like some kind of incentive just for being a follower prior to going launch. Um, that helps grow that followership in a very organic way. Um, yep. And I, so although you have a smaller audience, the audience that are kind of tapped in are tuned in pretty deep, right? So time will tell, yeah, I we guess, were, but yeah. I think we're the first, it was us, the Cyanide and Happiness campaign, the first two to use that functionality. So the, the raw campaign, if you followed it, there's a, uh, enamel pin you get for free, you know, yeah. if you're a backer. And we made it available as an add-on for purchase. You didn't get it. Sure. And it's cheap. So it's not, we don't charge a lot for it because we don't want to make people feel bad if they missed it. But um, but the fact you can, they can marry up, you know, you can, otherwise, in old days, you used to have to like make people go to like a sign up page and sign up. Then you had to go like match the email addresses on your own to yeah. add the free gift and things like that. So they made it very, a lot more integrated, which is great. Um, so yeah, we're kind of working through that. And you know, get a lot of questions people early on. I got a lot of questions about that, and I'm like, uh, I don't know. I got things from game people because I don't know the answer to some of these things because I've never seen it used before until like us and the Cyanide folks did it. But, um, but yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. One of the other things I think that's I didn't realize until running it, uh, until the campaign was active and I went to go post my first update. And actually, even before it's live, you can go do this, you can actually make updates to everyone. like backers and followers you know so in kickstarter you like you, you may have and you can see in your, your kickstarter dashboard you'll see yeah oh, i've got twenty five thousand people following the campaign i've got ten thousand backers i never had ten thousand backers in a campaign but i'm just saying representative yeah you know you, you, but, but you can't contact the fifteen thousand. but kickstarter would do that of course at the 48 hour mark the 24 hour mark and you kind of get yeah. those notification alerts but you can't talk to them so what's cool about the new Game Phone campaign, I think, is that it's a fantastic feature. It's probably my favorite one of everything I've seen so far on the Game Phone side, is the fact that when I send out an update, it goes to every single person following it or backing it. I think I you can not choose that. an option to like just go to backers, I think. Um, yeah. But honestly, while a campaign is live, why would you, right? Like, I get to one more way I can touch and get in front of, like, hey, this campaign's still going on. These are the things that are happening. Like, if you haven't joined, come on in the fold, you know? That piece alone, I think, is one of the best things about Game Phone. I didn't even know that. So I mean, that's there, there you go. there too. Yeah. It's like, no one talks about that. I'm like, this is like the best part. You know? Yeah. Oh, so cool. So you must have, you know, this is wrapping up obviously soon. Um, and I think you guys mentioned you have another title kind of on deck that is coming. What is that title? And when's it coming out? Uh, yeah. So what I'll be, I'm trying to figure out now what's going to be next. I'm trying to sort out. So crowdfunding versus, versus retail. So straight to retail. Well, it, coming up next on retail wise, we've got, uh, a few games this summer. Two of those are straight to retail. Uh, one of those is actually what's today? Twenty fifth. Let me back at once more step. Next week we have a, re a straight to retail release uh, called Sunny Day Sardines. It's a very small little mint tin sardine tin game. Okay, yeah. Um, very very simple little order order uh, fulfillment game. It, it, it comes out next week. That's also straight to retail. Uh, that was a game I picked up off a of, off a of game crafter. So I found it on Game Crafter. And I was like, hey, this is a cool little game. Like, let's let's make it for retail, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that 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 one's coming up next. And then this summer, we've got a few straight to retail releases. One of those is 
uh, Longborn, which is another Reiner game. Um, and then um, Green Team Wins, which is a party game. We're going to have both of those at Origins. So if you're at Origins, come by the booth. Uh, we'll have advanced copies of Green Team Wins, uh, which is by Nathan uh, Thornton, who did Medium, uh, as well as uh, Longboard. And then, of course, Gardenbound Blazon will be fulfilling soon, which is our previous two crowdfunding campaigns. Those will be out later this summer. Um, and then, yeah, that's like the most near-term stuff. Got a few other things that will be coming out in the fall that are straight to retail. But next crowdfunding stuff, I've got to sort that out. That's either going to be possibly the Space, Expan Space Explorers expansion uh, or um, a new tiling game from uh, Jeff Allers, which is called Donut Shop. Uh, we're kind of putting the final touches on that art. Uh, or possibly, um, I just want to be Donut Shop combo with color field. I might try to do a two game in one campaign attempt next. I think it might be my next. Well, have you game found as well? Are you going to do Kickstarter? Or? Uh, that's the million dollar question, I guess. Well, hopefully, million dollar question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I got to decide. I, I really. I've been pretty impressed with the game fun folks. Um, yeah. I think and how it's done. You know, I, I don't know because these games don't have their own built-in following, but now also now have a game fun following in yeah. a way. Like, so do I just keep pushing forward here, or you know, I don't know. I, I could see a situation where I might, I might ping pong back and forth between them depending on the title. I think if yeah. it's a title that would appeal to casual browsers of Kickstarter, I might. I might go Kickstarter, right? If it's a, it's a title that I think will appeal to gamers, um, then I might go GameFound for it. Because there there is still this nice inherent like, built-in audience that Kickstarter has of just sure. people who window shop, right? Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that might do something. Something might do better over there that we're in GameFound. Of course, again, you can't A-B test it, so you never know. And do you guys have like a social channel or how do people follow you? Like, uh, is there like a discord channel or how, how do you, how do you kind of consolidate your audience? Yeah. yeah. So Instagram, Twitter, uh, probably to the best place, Instagram, especially, uh, obviously we have a Facebook page, uh, our email newsletter kind of keeps you obviously up to date on all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you miss a, a social post or whatever, we have a discord channel. You can search it out and, and find it. Unfortunately, I just don't have the time to really kind of do what it takes to cultivate that audience. I kind of mainly yeah. use it for playtesting meetups and stuff, but um, that's on, certainly on the growing that community, I think is something that would be great if, if I just had the, the time and money, I guess. No, oh, it takes a lot of time, but yeah, I want to wish you all the best. Uh, congrats again on this campaign. Uh, it, it is doing insanely well. Uh, yeah, Oh, yeah, I'm excited for it. Now, afterwards, I got to decide, okay, am I going to back the regular version or the deluxe version, right? Oh, so. man, deluxe. It's like, <laughs> it looks sweet. It's, yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, James. All the best this coming year, eh? You take care. Appreciate it. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.